Good morning. I'm so glad to be here with you. Um, like they said, my name is Chrissy Rule. I'm so grateful that Andy accosted me at a birthday party and was like, hey, what are you doing this Sunday? Um, so it's been a minute since I preached, but when he told me that the series was entitled Sunday School and I got to use a felt board, I, I wanted to. I was elated. Sign me up. Because um, in real life, I'm Minister of Children and Families at Isle of Hope United Methodist. So this, this is my jam. So I was really excited about doing that and hearing about, um, he, I think he called it a silly series that he was doing, but I thought it was really cool to investigate and, and throw back to all these stories that we've learned in Sunday school. So the story that we're going to hear today is a familiar story, but we're going to crank it up a notch because it's really ripe with scandal. So... Um, without further ado, let's listen to these words from the Bible on the parable of the lost son from Luke. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons and the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's the word of God today for us, the people of God. So this parable is the third in a series of lost parables. If you're looking at your Bible, if you flip back a few chapters before this, we have the shepherd with the lost sheep, the woman with the lost coin, and now we have a family with a lost son. And this trio of parables, Jesus is trying to tell, gets more and more scandalous each time as he moves from the invisible people on the margins. So already we're talking about shepherds and women's people that weren't weren't really a part of society back then. And this third parable, he sets his story right in the middle of a family of wealth, not just with riches, but with sons. That made you very wealthy back then to have both of those things. And so the moments of odd behavior leading to scandal start right from the beginning. So let's, let's paint the picture, shall we? And Let's paint this picture, shall we? Now, I brought a picture so you could see one interpretation here, and also we're going to see it unfold here. So the odd behavior starts from the very beginning. We have, of course, their house. They're well off. We just heard that. They're rich. They have this big house to live in. And so the father, dressed in his finest robes, is accosted by his son who starts right off with the odd behavior, right? He says, hey, I want my inheritance right away. Audacity, boldness um, to request such a thing. Inheritance was something you gave someone after you were dead, right? So really he's saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Money, please is what he ends up saying. And not only is this stupid request made by the younger son, but the father agrees to it. He recklessly says, okay, you know, he's holding out his hand here. Sure, take it, take it. And if the servants weren't gossiping now, well, they surely are at this point because the audacity of the son's request for his inheritance The younger son, who would get a smaller piece of the pie, requests that, and then the father gives it to him. And so the son goes off, heads off in his chariot here, ready to see the world with his inheritance. We're off to a spectacular scandal right away. This is already causing the servants to talk. The neighbors are talking. Did you hear the younger son, the father, they just gave him all his money? Where's he going? What's he going to do? And so then we hear that the son has squandered his inheritance with wild living. Later we find out it was with the ladies. That's what he was doing. But he spends all of his riches, all of his money on women, and he finds himself totally desolate, hired help on a pig farm. He squanders everything. He's considered dining in the slop with the pigs at this point. When he comes to his senses, the scripture says, he comes to his senses 
and he decides to start preparing a big speech for his dad. Any child probably knows this speech that you're ready to give your parents after you've really done something bad, you got it all prepped out, you know, what am I going to say, what am I going to, you know, I'm going to try to make my way back into the family. And so he, you know, gets a speech ready where he reduces himself down to the place of the father's servants, and he starts off for home. If I could, if I could turn him around. Okay, he starts off for home. He's going, he's going this way, right? He starts back off for home. And, you know, we can safely assume that by the time he gets home, he's a total wreck, right? He's been in the slop with the pigs. He's walked all this way home, so he's dirty, smelly, sweaty from the road. He's a mess. So if we could, like, you know, rip him in half, perhaps, and sprinkle some dirt, I mean, he... Uh, falling off the felt board here. He's a disaster by the time he gets home. And yet, yet, he doesn't even make it up the driveway back to the house when his father sees him. His father who was outside, waiting for him, looking at the horizon. His father sees him a long way off. And when he gets within view of the house, his father runs to meet him. Now here's the second, or maybe we're on the third part of the scandal now, because dignified men, wealthy men in Jesus' time, in his culture, do not run. They don't run. It's just not a thing that they do. And so clearly the father, already out of character for handing his inheritance over, runs to meet him and Then we hear even more scandal because by welcoming him as he does, by embracing him, by interrupting his big apology, which wasn't really an apology that he'd planned out, before hearing a word, the father appears, really ripe for exploitation, right? He doesn't wait for his son to express any sort of contrition. Um, There's really only a brief confession in the son's speech But the father embraces him, interrupts that brief half-apology, and restores him to full status in the household, symbolized by the robe, the ring, the sandals, the fatted calf. So we're left with a really interesting situation here, right? Because do you believe the younger son? I mean, is he earnestly repentant here? Or is he a manipulative scoundrel? I didn't actually hear an apology in his rehearsed speech. Is it really a ploy designed to tug at the heartstrings of his gullible father? We don't know. And we won't know because the point is that even those some would view as scoundrels are welcomed back, are welcomed in God's household. Just pointing oneself towards home is what unleashes God's welcome. Any motive to get back there would do. Well, speaking of motives, oh, I forgot my um, younger son. I did have a younger son here that looks pretty beat up. I forgot to put him in there. Forget those, those fancy robes. He looks beat up. But... You know, speaking of motives, what about this older brother? The older brother 
has come in from the fields. He sees what's happening. He sees the encounter taking place over here. I mean, the older brother, isn't he right? Isn't he correct? The older brother's left to hold this scandal that breaks all the rules. Isn't he correct in saying that his younger brother, his father, were breaking all these rules of family, of society? His little brother rudely asked for his inheritance only to blow it all and end up penniless, stupidly welcomed home with open arms by his father who doesn't even wait for an apology, but instead becomes recklessly indulgent in welcoming back his vagrant son. As soon as the older brother appears in the story, we sense his alienation. We sense that he feels alone. No one even bothered to call him to join the party. We can assume that he saw this encounter, the two go inside to join the party, and he's left there at the door wondering what the heck just happened. So finally, he doesn't enter the house. But the father must have seen that everybody was falling apart. The father must have seen the older brother outside. And he goes to him. And when he goes to him, the older brother, he doesn't even bother to address his father as father. He starts right off and says, this son of yours, not my older brother, or not my younger brother, but this son of yours, and I've done that. I'm an oldest child of a younger sibling, right? You go up to mom and dad, this daughter of yours, she's crazy, <laughs> right? So he doesn't even start off with this, you know, my brother. He starts off with this son of yours. And his he refuses to celebrate. That's why the father comes back out to find him because he refuses to come into the house and celebrate. And all that refusal to celebrate stems from his deep resentment. Why is he resentful? Well, he's taken for granted. No extravagance celebrates his reliable, long-suffering service. He accuses his father of showing preferential treatment and he expresses this with the intensity that such unfairness can generate within family systems. It seems to him like there's clearly a favored child. That this one, your son, is getting all the accolades and I've been here this whole time. I haven't left. I haven't squandered my wealth. And the older son forces us both to digest just how scandalous the father's actions are and to ask what this son's reaction says to us. He's resentful and is he right? He's resentful and he's right. Because through the elder son, we truly see how the father's response to the younger son breaks all the rules breaks all the doctrines, breaks all the convictions. And yet it's through his eyes, the older son's eyes, that we see the true scandal here. The true scandal being that the father's grace extended to the younger son and then equally to the older son 
a grace that goes to both of them? Because equally they share in being called son by their father. Not cast out, but invited in. If we go back to the scripture, we hear the father's response to the older son. He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And we can imagine from there that the father invites him to come celebrate inside. We, we don't really know what happens to the older son. Does he stay? Does he go? I don't know. But the father equally shows favoritism to the older son and the younger son. And we're left puzzling why. Why? That seems like a scandal. Maybe at this point you can see yourself in this story. I mentioned earlier that I'm the oldest. Um, And at times I totally relate to the older brother because I had a younger sibling that was crazy. crazy. And she would do reckless, crazy things. And I was left being like, how dare she even show her face at home? after that crazy thing. And I may have to admit to you that at times I said to my parents, you just got to cut her off. That'll solve the behavior. Just cut her off. It'll be fine. Um, So maybe you see yourself in that role. But now as a parent, I'm a parent of two kids, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. I totally get the father at this point. I totally get the, the welcome back, welcome home, Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, welcome back. We're just happy that the child chose home instead of another stop. And yet upon first reading and second reading of this story, I'm always hesitant to see myself as the younger brother, to see myself as the younger brother. Yet if we sit with this passage a little longer, and slip ourselves into the younger brother's shoes and experience what the grace must have been like to come home to a father who maybe you didn't even know could run, runs to you with open arms and embraces you, what would that have been like? What would it have been like for you, for me, a prodigal you, a prodigal me to come back Maybe then we can start to glimpse what God's grace might be like. Is that what grace looks like? God running toward us with open arms? Is God's grace a grace so eager to give and restore? Will not those who value responsibility and propriety consider it dangerously permissive, scandalous even? to have a grace so freely given. One thing for sure about this story is that both brothers misunderstand in their own ways the workings of grace. The younger seeks to bargain and manipulate 
while the elder can't let go of canons and grudges and the rules. Yet both are welcomed home regardless. It calls us to reassess our own standards and the basis of our relationship to God. This story, these brothers call us to look once again at the extravagance of the father and they cause us to look squarely at the scandal of grace. You know, the church doctrine of grace is misunderstood in almost every arena of life these days. Wasteful extravagance for the sinner seems so far-fetched for our practical imaginations that we cannot even begin to grasp the concept of a God who loves anyone and everyone. Surely there are limits, we think. Surely there must be some measure of grace given to each person. There has to be a line somewhere, we think. And yet this parable, this teaching of Jesus, teaches the exact opposite. There's no limit. There's no measure. There's no line. Grace is given so abundantly that in our modern society of recycling and portion control, we would call it wasteful. We would all readily agree that God's grace is amazing and enough. But do we or can we agree that God's grace is unmerited, undeserved, measureless? So much so that it is scandalous. And we all know what a scandal is, right? Just turn on the news. You will see a scandal there. It's part of our everyday life and it defines our organizations and our people. And do we even pair that word with God's grace? Scandalous grace? I think the answer is yes. Because a scandal defined by itself is any revealed wrongdoing that causes widespread indignation and disgust. We can definitely say the older brother was disgusted by what happened. Totally, you know, didn't even want to talk to his father about it. Didn't even want to claim to be part of the family. We take that and we pair it with grace as defined as unmerited favor. And we push the two words together and we've created an oxymoron, right? a figure of speech which seems contradictory that appears together. If we look at this story again and really study the father's reaction to both, he's welcoming, he's invitational, he names them both sons, calling him part of his family, part of himself. It's, it's ridiculous. It's disgusting. It's disgraceful even. And yet, that's the Bible. That's the parable. That's the story. That's the lesson that Jesus wants us to get here. Because Jesus, in his teaching of the parables, is continually offering up stories rich with the absurd to teach us something out of the ordinary, something extraordinary. And this time, this story captures the greatest scandal of all, the scandal of grace. A God so full of grace that it spills overflowing to everyone, to all, no matter how long the road has been, how tough the circumstances have been, 
or even how steady the rules have been held onto. God's grace flows freely for all over and over again as we continue to turn our feet towards home and a homecoming with our creator. Because we know that home for some of us has a negative connotation. But at this point, we're talking about God's home, a homecoming with the creator. I think, though, the best way to sum up this whole thing, and I'm so glad that you sang the song that had amazing grace built into it. I thought, wow, what a God moment here. But I think the whole way to sum up the whole thing comes in the lyrics of the old hymn, Amazing Grace. There's a lesser known verse that says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. These two brothers, far away, were both lost. Lost right in their home, lost in a pigsty somewhere far away. And yet through the toil, through the snares, through the the jealousy, through the anger, through the shame, found their way back home just by showing up and found the grace that existed there, a grace that was overflowing with abundance there, a grace that led them home. That's something to celebrate today. As we close our time together, I hope you have felt an overflowing of grace in this story. I hope you have seen this ridiculous, unmerited grace that some would call a scandal because of how abundant it truly is. And that's my prayer for each of us, that we can find that grace, that overflowing, overwhelming grace in all of our lives. Will you pray with me? God, we're so grateful for your grace, a grace that is ridiculous, extravagant, wasteful even, and yet a grace that we all long for. Help us this week to see this overflowing grace in our own lives, to try to extend it to others. And to try to gift our own families, our own communities with this wastefully extravagant, ridiculous scandal of grace. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so glad that you joined us today. I'm so glad that I joined you today and that we gathered for worship together. So go now out into the community and go extend that stupid grace. Amen.